You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Mananan, MD, Jawbreaker, Kenway, Toves, Loinin, Two-Gun Tony, Drunken Dak, Redbeard, Legends, Eric the Red, The Pirate Nopales, Hefe, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Jennings, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When we left off, the situation on Chesapeake Bay was on edge. One man, William Claiborne, stood at the heart of all the turmoil. Claiborne was a Virginia fur trader who also owned large tobacco plantations and served as the Secretary of State for Virginia. The conflict on the Chesapeake was due to his trading post on Kent Island. Kent Island should, obviously, have been considered part of the Maryland colony, at least geographically speaking, but that's assuming a few things. I mean, there are border considerations and territorial allocations and the rights of the inhabitants and the owners of the island. One does need to take all that into account, and it all did play a role here. But more than any other factor, there was one key question. Should the Maryland colony exist at all? The government of Virginia, including William Claiborne and the governor, Thomas West, the third Baron Delaware, did not think that Maryland should exist. It was technically on land that formerly had belonged to the Virginia Company. However, after sitting unused for 40 years, at least unused by the English, the Crown chose to give Maryland to another party. Which, you know, does make sense. England was trying to build an empire here. If Virginia wasn't going to use the land, give someone else a crack at it. Namely, they gave it to Cecil Calvert, the second Baron Baltimore. Now, Claiborne and Delaware didn't much care for Baltimore or his younger brother, the acting governor of Maryland, Leonard Calvert. Mostly, this was due to the fact that the Calvert family and the Maryland colony under them were Catholic. Virginia was a staunchly, even zealously, Protestant colony. They were officially Anglican, but a few tendrils of Puritan influence were present there as well, and they would grow. Now, the struggle over Kent Island seemed to culminate when William Claiborne was put on trial. He had been falsely accused of turning the nearby Patuxent people against Maryland. But Claiborne was exonerated. He didn't do it. Everybody back in England, upon receipt of that news, sent messages that ordered everyone to stand down and cool out. 
but by the time they did, it was too late. By the time that word reached America, blood had already been shed. It was the first blood in a conflict that would turn the Chesapeake red, and it would turn Kent Island into a haven for the absolute worst sort of sailors that England had to offer. This is episode 155, Grievous Crimes of Piracy and Murder, Part 2. So what happened in America? Well, when Lord Baltimore's first set of orders came down, the fire and brimstone orders, cease all operations or face my judgment, Claiborne received a letter, a letter that told him to cease all operations or action would be taken. Claiborne, though, didn't stop any of his operations. So a number of small ships full of armed men began to circle Kent Island to put them under the threatened blockade. Then a group of warriors from the Susquehannock people, armed with bows and, notably, a few muskets, attacked Kent Island. Mysterious. Although, to the people of Kent Island, it was as good as a declaration of war against them. Claiborne immediately began construction on two forts and produced what was frankly an amazing amount of cannons and small arms from what appeared to be out of thin air. He'd obviously been stockpiling arms and ammunition for years. Now the Catholic ships that were menacing Kent Island attempted to disrupt the fort construction throughout the winter, but Claiborne's defenses stopped them at every turn. When the spring finally arrived, the misunderstanding had been all cleared up. All of those letters from England had reached America telling everybody to relax, but people were dead, and neither camp was willing to back down. In March of 1635, William Claiborne's brother-in-law captured a Maryland pinnace that was threatening landfall on Kent Island. Donald Shemette calls this, quote, the first documented act of piracy on the waters of Chesapeake Bay, end quote. And that's accurate. This seizure was very well documented. The Marylanders made sure of it. And though there had been acts of piracy between English peoples in America already, this was the first on the Chesapeake. However, William Claiborne, once the pinnace was brought back to Kent Island, he didn't take their ship or their cargo. He arrested the crew and he threw them in a holding cell, and then William Claiborne harangued them. He talked to them forcefully, yes, but he made his position clear. Claiborne asserted that Kent Island was his land, and he let them know that his allegiance was, always had been, and always would be, to Virginia. Now, they could live as neighbors in peace, that was, after all, the will of the king, or they could escalate this into a fight. But that wasn't up to William Claiborne. He wanted to continue doing business. That was up to Maryland. And to prove this point, he let them go. William Claiborne released the Maryland pinnace and the men and their goods. However, William Claiborne did make his point. Stay the hell away from Kent Island. And that is exactly the opposite of what Maryland did. Now it sounds to me 
personally, very much like William Claiborne's brother-in-law messed up when he captured that pinnace. That was a folly, it was a bad move, a bad look. And now William Claiborne was doing everything in his power to mitigate the fallout of that ship's capture. But, as previously noted, this was very well documented as an act of piracy. In a few short weeks, London was rumbling with this threat of piracy in America. So let's take a second to look at the climate in London, and in England as a whole. It's relevant to what's happening in America, but it will be quick. We've talked about this before. The King of England was Charles I, the second Stuart King to sit the throne. Charles was a deeply unpopular king. The state of affairs in England wasn't great anyway. The fumes of Elizabethan prosperity were little more than a memory, and even the cultural highs of his father's reign were rapidly dwindling. The situation deteriorated for Charles I. He had a lot of opposition, and finally, in the 1630s, we have a period known as the personal rule of Charles I. In the face of all that opposition, the king chose not to call a single parliament between 1629 and 1640. Now that was against the law, or at least it was against the will of Magna Carta. Now that was an old document. 300 years later, nobody much cared about that dusty old piece of paper, but once King Charles came round, the Magna Carta became the subject of much aristocratic debate. Now, the immediate effect of governing without a legislative body, the most direct effect, is that the king was unable to collect taxes. Parliament held the purse strings here. Now, Charles did try a few other means to collect money. He attempted to collect what was called ship money, that is, a levy for the king to raise a navy to defend England from invasion by sea. The navy wasn't having any of it, and really that didn't work out too well for King Charles, but there were a few other methods. Charles attempted to impose fines for everyday affairs, basically taxing people for living their life, but these absolutely were not taxes. I told you last time that during this era there was a lot of respecting the king's will while ignoring him going on. Most of that started with these definitely not taxes. If the king had followed Elizabeth's example and just commissioned a fleet of privateers, he would have raked in money. But that upset the Spanish and the Pope, and King Charles wanted to avoid both. Which brings us to the religious question, the defining question of the era. King Charles was not a Catholic, probably, at least. He certainly wasn't the sort of secret Catholic that his children would be. But Charles was sympathetic. He had a Catholic wife and close ties to the Bourbons. It was a problem in the Stuart dynasty. And King Charles was moving the Church of England toward high Anglicanism. He built huge, monumental churches that were bedecked in gold and jewels. They had idols overlooking their stone altars. And many Protestants considered that sinful idolatry. And he had the Anglicans receiving communion. Now that's 
not unheard of today, but in the 1630s it was heresy. Literally, it was heretical to take communion as a Protestant in most sects. Many in England believed that Charles was clandestinely moving the Anglican faith toward something that resembled Catholicism, and he would continue moving it until he could abolish Anglicanism altogether. Now, a lot of people raised their concerns over this, but any nobleman who voiced their concerns had an ear cut off. Any commoners that did so were just killed. But a growing number of Protestants were growing more and more militant. The parliamentarians, those who did not support the king, were arming for war. But then we have the Puritans, kind of a wild card in this whole affair. The Puritans believed in a sort of zealous Christian communism. And, you know, not the kind of cool Tolstoyan Christian anarchism. The Puritans weren't pacifists. The kingdom of God was absolutely not within you. The Puritans, at least those who rose to become the leaders of the movement at the time, were all about the sword. The kingdom of God was not a spiritual kingdom, but a top-down, rigid, unbending theocracy. Now, all of these forces were in conflict with one another, but the sides were drawing up for battle. England was not yet at war with itself, but Britain was. All of the other nations that would go on to make up the United Kingdom, you know, Scotland and Wales and parts of Ireland, well, they were all skirmishing and fighting smaller battles. And to make everything worse, continental Europe was currently tearing itself apart in the Thirty Years' War. That's the climate in which the people of America, both the Catholics in Maryland and the Protestants in Virginia, and every one of them angry at the king, that's the climate in which they found themselves in the 1630s pointing guns at one another. That's why... Even when word arrived that they were to lay down their arms, no one was willing to do so. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Back on the Chesapeake, Captain Thomas Smith of the Kent Island pinnace Longtail set sail on the 5th of April, 1634. He was headed to an Algonquin village on the mainland to engage in some absolutely legal trade with the people there. However, en route to the mainland, 
Longtail was surprised by two ships out of Maryland that stopped Captain Smith and Longtail and demanded to see his license to trade from Lord Baltimore. Captain Smith instead produced licenses and letters from the king and the lords of trade and plantations and the secretary of state of both England and Scotland as well as Lord Delaware. All of these documents attested to his rights under the law to engage in trade on the mainland. The captains of those two Maryland ships ignored those papers. They claimed that they were forgeries, which they weren't. And then they captured Longtail. They brought her back to St. Mary's. They confiscated her cargo and arrested all of the men. The only man who was allowed to go free was Captain Smith, who was given a canoe and allowed to return home with the news. I mean, look at that. Which of those two acts looks like piracy to you? The guy who released the ship and the cargo and the men after a stern talking to, or the guy who ignored the king, who stole the ship and the cargo? It's a rare reversal where we see the Protestants acting as the victims and the Catholics acting as the pirates. However, if we dig a little bit deeper into this act, it gets a bit more sinister. The captains from Maryland demanded a license from Lord Baltimore, and when presented with letters from the king and the lords of trade and everyone who was important, they ignored it. Because he didn't have a license from the Baron Baltimore. It suggests to me that the people of Maryland, or at least those two ship captains, had allegiances other than those to king and country that perhaps superseded king and country. In response to this act of piracy, Kent Island outfitted a sloop which was more powerful than anything else on Maryland's waters at the time. The sloop Cockatrice set off for the water around St. Mary's. They intended retribution for the offense they had just suffered with the capture of Longtail, and Cockatrice found a prize almost immediately, a pinnace out of Maryland, and they engaged. But it was a trap. While Cockatrice and that Maryland pinnace were involved in their skirmish, a running and shooting battle, another Maryland pinnace arrived on the scene. While all of her attention was focused on the first ship out of Maryland, the second came up alongside and boarded the cockatrice. Both crews drew blades and drew blood. They had a brief, if brutal, fight with many men lying dead and even more wounded. But while they were engaged, the other Maryland pinnace came alongside, boarded cockatrice, and won the day. This was a blow to the people of Kent Island. Cockatrice was supposed to be their ace in the hole, and they just lost it, their second ship in as many battles. This set off a series of small naval skirmishes throughout 1635. Most of them aren't terribly well recorded, but people were dying on all sides. However, despite those two initial setbacks, William Claiborne and Kent Island began to do very well. They did so by starting small. They captured the smallest ships they could find 
and added them to their fleet. That gave them more guns and more mobility and more manpower. In those battles, they took food and trade goods, which they very much needed and which attracted more and more people to Kent Island. This is the textbook foundation for a pirate haven. I mean, why waste your money trading with the Native Americans when you could just steal the furs from Maryland? Not only do you save your money, you make them spend their money with no profit at all. Plus, you're likely to get tobacco and wine and food and guns and ships, and soon enough, men will be flocking to your port to join your navy. Kent Island was building a pirate fleet. But this has a lot to do with politics as well. The governor in Jamestown, officially the deputy governor under Lord Delaware, was very unpopular. There had been some poor decisions made on his part, and a movement was growing in Jamestown to have him removed. William Claiborne, the Secretary of State, was at the forefront of that movement. He was agitating in the assembly and in the streets. His opinions held weight, and his actions had consequences. His bosses, his investors, back in London had interests in Virginia beyond Kent Island. So they sent an agent to rein William Claiborne in. Pirates on the Chesapeake tells us, quote, In December 1636, Kent Island was visited by one George Evelyn, a man who had recently acquired a sixth share in Cloberry and Company. At first, the purpose of his visit was anything but suspicious. In February of the following year, however, it was learned that Evelyn had been given power of attorney by Cloberry and command of the Kent Island operation. End quote. Claiborne may have been building a proto-pirate fleet there at Kent Island, but he didn't own the island, or the trading post, or the fleet. He proposed it, he founded it, Kent Island was his baby, but his baby belonged to a bunch of rich investors, and they called the shots. George Evelyn, once his position was revealed, ordered William Claiborne to return to London to answer for his actions. Admittedly, they did look bad. But Claiborne, before leaving, did take action. He established another trading post at Palmer Island at the mouth of the Chesapeake, and in his place he left his top lieutenant, Thomas Smith, not exactly in charge, but continuing his legacy. Then he drafted a bond which would prevent George Evelyn from selling any territory or goods or property that belonged to Kent Island. That was a legally binding agreement that George Evelyn freely signed. Quoting Chamette, quote, No sooner were Claiborne's sails over the horizon than Evelyn began to violate the bond into which he had entered. End quote. This was unexpected. Cloberry and Company would not have wanted George Evelyn to sell off any of that territory or property. But Cloberry and Company had been taken for a ride. See, when George Evelyn bought 
that sixth share in their company, he did so with money that came from the pockets of Baron Baltimore. This was industrial espionage, or, you know, colonial espionage, and Evelyn was a double agent. He was Baltimore's man to the core, and he immediately halted all trading operations on Kent Island. He grounded every ship and even had a few of them disassembled. This prevented the residents from sailing out to earn a profit, but it also prevented them from sailing out to get food. Before long, there was a very real threat of starvation on Kent Island. And as we know, rich, powerful London elites threatening a bunch of sailors with poverty and starvation always goes well for those rich, powerful London elites. Thomas Smith, the man left behind by William Claiborne, and another top agent named John Butler spearheaded the resistance of Kent Island. We're talking militias, mobs raised by those two that manned the fort against Evelyn and sent him packing all the way back to Maryland. We're talking about ship convoys making for the mainland for very much needed supplies. George Evelyn tried twice to retake Kent Island. The winds turned his ships back on the first attempt, and on the second, the Kent Island militia fought him back at the walls of their fort. Evelyn fled back to St. Mary's. And we should keep in mind that all of these forces are tiny. Even by colonial standards, they're small. George Evelyn only had 15 men under his command when he made landfall on Kent Island. The next attempt, made by Leonard Calvert, had double that, but only 30 men, and they were split into two forces. Calvert led one of those forces on the east side of the island, while the other force, led by a man named Cornwallis, landed on the west. They made landfall at night under the cover of darkness, and they moved inland toward two of the largest plantations on the island. Without firing a shot at nearly the same time, those two forces captured John Butler and Thomas Smith, asleep in their beds. Come dawn, both forces of musketeers met at the city square with both of their prisoners in chains. They set up shop and the people began to filter out and eventually to flood the street, but the musketeers didn't round them up or threaten them, they certainly didn't fire upon them. Instead, standing behind and above his two prisoners, Leonard Calvert addressed the people of Kent Island. He announced that Kent Island was now and forever part of the Maryland colony. However, he offered the people of Kent Island clemency for their rebellion, and he offered them a return to profitable business if they agreed to fall in line behind him. Everyone on Kent Island, aside from the two men in chains, agreed. Now this wasn't official. People back in England were hesitant to make official declarations about the status of Kent Island, considering their last attempt to bring peace had gone absolutely nowhere. If they were to fight it out, let them fight it out and back the victor. In the end, after they were brought back to St. Mary's, John Butler and Thomas Smith were imprisoned, but John Butler was offered clemency. 
he agreed to certain provisions, and when George Evelyn returned to Kent Island to take command, John Butler was his number two. That offered a certain sense of consistency to the leadership. Thomas Smith, on the other hand, they had to make an example of. He was charged and tried, found guilty, and convicted on acts of piracy. That was the first such conviction in America. He was sentenced to hang. However, after being shown that they were serious, they offered him clemency as well. All he had to do was support the forces of Evelyn and Maryland. Smith agreed and returned to Kent Island, but fled in his ship and returned almost immediately to rebellion. He was caught shortly thereafter, and in April 1638, Thomas Smith was marched to the St. Mary's Gallows and hanged by the neck until dead. That's the first execution for piracy in the English colonies. Thomas Smith and John Butler, while leaders of the rebellion, were small potatoes. William Claiborne was the true leader and the mastermind of everything that had happened on Kent Island. William Claiborne was censured and relieved of duty by his investors for his acts of criminal activity, and then he was charged and tried by Leonard Calvert and the Assembly of Maryland. William Claiborne was found guilty of, quote, grievous crimes of piracy and murder, end quote, on the 24th of March, 1638. He was sentenced to hang. However, Thomas Smith was not in Maryland, he was not in Virginia, and at this point, he was not in England. Thomas Smith was charged and tried and sentenced in absentia. Still, it was a symbolic victory, and the governor of Virginia appealed the decision with the Lords of Trade. However, they ruled against the governor and William Claiborne, and thus Virginia and their assembly accepted the decision and removed William Claiborne from his post as Secretary of State. His lands were absorbed back into Virginia, and Maryland confiscated all of his lands on Kent Island. William Claiborne was out there with a ship somewhere on the seas, and he was now a man with no home, not in England, not in Virginia, not in Maryland, and in the eyes of the law of all three, William Claiborne was an outlaw. And it's always a good idea when you don't know where a man who has already shown his proclivity and vast talents for grievous crimes of piracy and murder, it's always a good idea to name him Outlaw. Somewhere out there, William Claiborne was planning his revenge. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everybody who has signed up to become a patron on Patreon. Everybody who has left us a rating or a review. Everybody who has signed up to help the show through the website or PayPal. And everybody who has recommended this show. All of you make this show possible. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you 
you haven't yet checked them out, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on Twitter, SoundCloud, Reddit, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight